Good morning. It's good to be with you. Our sermon text is John chapter 1. John chapter 1, the first 18 verses. If you have your Bibles, please open up there. Or It is the third scripture lesson that we read this morning. Let's go ahead and pray before we begin. Father in heaven, we know that um, all that will take place this morning is utterly in, in vain unless you are here uh, working uh, in us. We pray that your spirit will be present, driving the word of God into the people of God uh, for your glory, your kingdom forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes Jesus different? What makes Jesus different? Is he just a nice teacher? Is he just an example of how to live? Is he just a holy man? Was he just another first century Jewish rabbi who had some interesting ideas? You may be here this morning and believe something along these lines. You may think that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, a a wise leader. And you would be right, but... He isn't solely a good man or a good teacher. For as we will see, without him, nothing was made that was made. This is the remarkable claim of our text this morning, that apart from the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, nothing would have been made. Without him, nothing would exist. And so the time has come to draw near, for the begotten God has drawn near to you. And this is our big picture this morning, that because the begotten God drew near, we must draw near to Him. So let's first consider these first eight verses. The first eight verses where we will see that since Jesus is the life of light, we must testify about the light. Our passage this morning is often called the prologue of the Gospel of John. It's the introduction to his Gospel. Every major theme found in John and the rest of the book can be found here in the prologue. It is a truly remarkable text which makes clear to us who Jesus really is and therefore who God really is. The New Testament as a whole teaches and reveals to us the triune God, who is the great I Am, the God who is. And although Trinitarian theology developed from a deep theological reflection of the Scriptures as a whole, there are surely certain places in Scripture that speak more directly of God's revelation of Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Gospel of John, particularly his prologue, is especially foundational in our Trinitarian understanding. And these 18 verses reveal to us the very nature of the Godhead, the glorious relationship, and glorious there implies the Spirit, the glorious relationship between the Father and the Son from all eternity, and the marvelous work of the Spirit in the Incarnation. And this text reveals to us his effectual blessed work in the lives of those who have been born of God. 
Now, our text opens with these famous words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A lot of discussion has gone into the background of the Word, Word, or in Greek, logos. You maybe have heard that term before. We translate it as Word. Is the background for this term Greek philosophy, Plato, or something else? I believe the real background is primarily... Genesis 1, or the Old Testament as a whole. John draws our attention in Genesis 1 in part by the opening phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning. That should sound familiar. However, not only because of the opening words. The Apostle John here uses the themes and terms of light, darkness, speech, God's speech, word, which are also found in the creation account. One uh, writer, Ritterboss, uh, argues this. He says the, it's best to view Genesis 1 as the score of the prologue. As the score of the prologue. I think that is correct. And so how are these texts connected? The Lord's speech in Genesis 1 acts. God's speech acts. It's not like our speech. I can say move to uh, this chair, and the chair is not going to move. It's not going to go anywhere. My words don't act like God's words. And so we must note that in Old Testament revelation, the word of the Lord is much more than just words. It is action. God speaks and mountains, valleys, and oaks are brought forth. His word goes forth and whole nations are brought to nothing. As we read from Isaiah 55, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You see, the Lord and His Word in the Old Testament are one. They are united. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity was not revealed until the New Testament, surely, but it's as if John is saying, these truths I'm laying out here should not be utterly unrecognizable. God in Genesis 1 created the world through His Word and by the power of the Spirit who hovered over the face of the waters. It's almost as if John is doing a commentary on Genesis 1, having reconsidered it post-resurrection or post-incarnation, post-ascension. We learn here that God has eternally spoken His Word. The Word expresses who God is as to His very nature. And so the Word Himself is God. Very God of very God. We must also note that the incarnate Word is the light that extinguished the darkness at creation. Verse 4 and 5. The light shines and the darkness does not overcome it. But what John is saying isn't just about creation. These themes flow through the whole uh, prologue here. You see, the life of light, verse 4, eternally shines, which extinguishes the darkness in the past, that creation, in the present, because the Lord says, let there be light in our hearts, and there is light, 2 Corinthians 4, and at the consummation, in the new creation, where He will extinguish darkness once and for all. The Word is the eternal light revealed through the Word of God, which said, let there be light. For Jesus is the life 
of light. In him was life, John says, and the life was the light of men. He is the life of light. That's why Jesus says elsewhere that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in him there is no darkness at all. And this is who John the Baptist was sent to testify about, isn't it? Not himself, as the text says, but the life of light who was coming into his own creation. To a much lesser degree, life is full of these lights that we find. And when we find them, we want to testify about them, don't we? These could be people, products, uh, workout plans, diets, life hacks, whatever it may be. I remember when I first met Catalina, and I'm not just saying this, or what I'm about to say for brownie points, but as an added bonus, we, when we first met, we met in a very dark place. Most of you uh, know this by now. We met in a drug uh, rehab center. And I still remember the first time I saw her, it was like a light in a dark place. However, if you go and tell your parents that you are dating someone that you met in this drug rehab that they sent you to, it's probably not going to go that well. You probably would be nervous about telling them. However, I wasn't nervous at all. At all. Because I knew I found this light in a dark place. I knew who she was. I knew it. And so I had all the confidence in the world. So how much more should we have telling the world about the life of light, Jesus Christ. We found a light, the light, in a dark place, or better said, true light found us. So how much more confidence should we have telling the world about the one who made us, sustains us, saves us, and therefore is recreating us in his image? Just as John was not the light, but was called to testify about the light, we too must testify about the light. This does not only mean in word, but surely it means in word, but also in deed, as Paul says, living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the life of light. Christian, testify about him. Remember what Paul says elsewhere in Romans, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you believe that he is the life of light? Do you believe this message of the gospel that God became flesh, entered into his own creation to die and save sinners like us? Do you believe that this gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Then testify of him, brothers and sisters. Wear your Christianity on your sleeve, but also in the way that you live. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of John, love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Our love for one another is a testimony to the world that we belong to Christ. A chapter later, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we all know the two greatest commandments, love God, love neighbor. And so, brothers and sisters, testify to Christ in word, but also 
and loving your neighbor as yourself so that when those who do not believe see your joy and love, they may ask for a reason for the hope that is in you, giving you an opportunity to testify of him, the life of light. And so since Jesus is the life of light, we must testify to him. Now let's draw our attention to verses 9 through 13. And here we'll see that since the world rejects Jesus, the word, we must not be confused when they reject us. Many think that 9 through 13, they see 9 through 13 as referring to the Son's incarnate state. However, I think the text is referring to the pre-incarnate Son, which makes verse 14 a pivotal, beautiful transition to the Incarnation. Notice in verse 9, we see the true light who was coming into the world. That seems to imply that he hasn't come yet in the text. But it does say he was in the world and he came to his own. In what sense, then, before the Incarnation, was the eternal Word, the Son, in the world? And in what sense did he come to his own? In this sense, the Son has always been the light of the world. He's always been the life of light. He has always been the eternal word of the Father, which goes forth and accomplishes what he was sent out for. Furthermore, he appears to his people throughout the Old Testament, as I'm sure you know. Who wrestled with Jacob? Who is the commander of the host of heaven who appeared to Joshua and commanded him to take off his sandals because the ground he was standing on was holy? Who? the pre-incarnate Son, the eternal Word, the life of light. In this sense, the Word was in the world and came to his own. Paul has a similar idea when he says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Israelites were drinking the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So in verses 9 through 13, if these verses are still speaking of the pre-incarnate Son, then the impact of verse 14 is just that much greater. The pre-incarnate Son was the light of the world, but was rejected often. He was even rejected by his own people. But now, as one author puts it, in the face of this rejection, he takes upon himself human flesh in order to reconcile the world to himself as the spotless Lamb of God, as we will discuss further in our next point. So therefore, in this section, we see that the Son who became incarnate was always at work in the world. He made the world. He was the light of the world. He was not received by the world, except by those who were born of God. Now, while 9 through 13 are speaking of the Word in His pre-incarnate state, all of what happened before surely mirrors what takes place when the Word is incarnate. He comes to His own in His flesh, and many reject Him. But some are given the right to become the children of God. As it was then, so it is now, but on a much grander scale. And this is what we learn then in verses 12 through 13. That before the Son entered into his own creation and after, all who were born of God receive him, and all who receive him are given the right to become the children of God. You see, right at the beginning of John's Gospel... Right at the beginning, he makes clear the reason why some people believe and some people do not. You ever wonder that? I'm sure you have. Uh, many of you may have brothers and sisters you grew up with in a Christian home. 
We're taught the same gospel by the same family in the same church. You believe and they do not. Why? What's the difference? Why do some believe and some reject? John tells us. See, in verse 12, John is telling us that anyone who believes is given the status of a child of God. And verse 13 tells us who those people are. Is it by natural descent? No, not of blood. Verse 13. Is it because they are smarter or wiser or stronger than those who reject Christ? No, not of the will of the flesh. Is it because the person who first told them about the message is better than who told the other person about the message? Or is it because your mom who taught you the gospel is better than the other person's mom who taught them the gospel? No, 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 no. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of man. The one who believes on Christ has been born of God. 1 John 5, 1 says the very same thing. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so the world has always rejected Christ. And apart from the Spirit's work in the heart of a person, no one will believe. So we shouldn't be shocked when the world rejects Jesus or when the world rejects us. If you go to a Dallas Cowboys game, I don't know why you would, but if you did, and they were playing the Eagles which they despise, and you were wearing your Eagles jersey, are you going to be surprised at the rejection you get? No, because the Dallas Cowboys fans are are rejecting your team. So they are rejecting you. Christian, we are often confused why the world looks at us funny. But we're not on their team anymore. How should we be shocked at this? Especially now that for the most part we live in a secularized, godless society. Jesus warns us of this later in John's Gospel. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Very simple. So don't be confused when the world hates you because of your love for Christ. Expect it. Expect it. You will be more confident living a life which testifies of Him in thought, word, and deed if you expect it. Since when you get rejection and are looked down upon because you are a Christian, you're not surprised. And it'll make it that much easier. One objection could be that this can breed an us-versus-them mentality, which can be pretty harmful could be potentially, uh, it could potentially lead to hating the lost rather than loving them, or hating our neighbor rather than loving them. But understood correctly, uh, it doesn't lead to that at all. Because, remember verses 12 and 13, we were chosen out of the world not because we are smarter or stronger or better, but because of God's grace. Apart from His free, undeserved grace and mercy, we would be of the world, just like them, rejecting Christ and his people. And so, Christian, be filled with thanksgiving because of this fact, that you're no longer of the world. Don't be surprised when they reject you, therefore. For our Lord came to his own, and they did not receive him. So we've seen that Jesus is the life of life. 
Therefore, we must testify of him. We've seen that the world rejects him, and so we shouldn't be confused when they reject us. And now let's look at the last few verses, verses 14 through 18, where we will see that since Jesus reveals the Father, we must draw near to him. Now we come to this pivotal transition point in John's prologue, where we learn that the eternal Word of God, through whom all things, came into being out of nothing. The life of light himself became flesh and dwelt among us. There may be an allusion here to the truth that comes up later in John, that Jesus is the true temple, as the term here to dwelt can mean to pitch a tent. In other words, Jesus tabernacled among us. He is the true temple. And now, how should we be understanding, though, this term become? The word became flesh. The word became flesh. Does this mean he ceased to be divine? Or did the divinity get diminished by joining a human flesh in any way? The short answer, as I'm sure many of you know, is no. But why? In John's prologue, the Word remains to be of the same substance as the Father when He becomes flesh, because He is the Word, who is the light, who came into the world, which darkness cannot overcome. You see, if He ceases to be fully the eternal Word, the darkness could overcome Him. In other words, John uses the word become, He became flesh, It must be interpreted in the context of what has already been stated and understood then as the Word came to exist as man. This becoming then is consistent with what has been argued earlier in the prologue. The Word is of the same substance as the Father. The Word becoming flesh in no way implies that the Word is a lesser deity than the Father. For as verse 18 says, He is the begotten God who is in the very bosom of the Father. He is the one who explains the Father. The word here translated as explain is where we get our term exegete from. He exegetes the Father. It essentially means interpret. John is saying here in theological language what Jesus says later in John's Gospel. I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. See, this is the eternal begotten Son, full of grace, full of truth, the glorious one. I love how John adds, we beheld his glory. We saw him. We ate with him. The very one who created us walked among us. Notice, as if John hasn't been clear already, he adds the words of John the Baptist. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. He existed before me. You see, all the Son, all that the Son is before the Incarnation, He is after the Incarnation. Jesus is truly God, truly man. Two natures existing in one person. Forever. This is the one who we have been waiting for, the Messiah, the one greater than Moses, the one through whom all the promises are accomplished. And yes, this Jesus Messiah was a man. He really became flesh, descended from David. He really ate. He got tired. He cried. He bled. He died. Yes, your Messiah is a man, but not just a man. 
He is the begotten God, very God of very God, who by the power of the Spirit rose again from the dead so that you can have life in His name. So who is this Jesus? He is the eternal begotten God and man, two natures in one person. Gregory of Nazianzus, in the most beautiful way that I've ever read, reflecting on the divinity and humanity of Jesus, said this, As man he was baptized, but he absolved sins as God. As man he was put to the test, but as God he came through victorious. He hungered, yet he fed thousands. He thirsted, yet he exclaimed, Whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was tired, yet he is the rest of the weary and the burdened. He is stoned, yet not hit. He prays, yet he hears prayer. He weeps, yet he puts an end to weeping. He surrenders his life, yet he has power to take it again. He dies, but he vivifies, and by death destroys death. If the first set of expressions starts you going astray, the second takes your error away. Brothers and sisters, God has drawn near to you in Christ. So draw near to Him. Can you imagine your spouse or your children, your father, your mother, someone you love, drawing near to you and you push them away? And you push them away. How much worse is it to push the God who created you away? who has drawn near to you in Christ. Draw near, brothers and sisters. If you've never drawn near, draw near to Christ. Cry out to Him. If you have drawn near, continue to drink from the endless fount of His grace. In fact, drawing near to Christ will lead you, surely, to testify of Him in word and deed, with confidence, being okay if the world rejects you, because you are no longer seeking to please men but Christ, the one who drew near to you, so that you may draw near to him. As we read from Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, hear these words. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And brethren, he has been made near to you in Christ, the eternal word, who has revealed the Father. So come, all who thirst, come and drink from the cup that will quench your thirst forever. And find rest for your souls in the begotten God who made you body and soul. The Messiah, our Lord, our God, and our King, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would drive your precious word deep into our hearts. Help us, Lord, to sanctify the Lord Christ as Lord in our hearts, so we may be always ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Be with us, Father, as you go forth from here. Do what you have said, and sanctify your people in your truth, for your word is truth. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.